Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today, we toast to champagne and its role in the season's festivities. In the UK last year, everybody drank half a bottle of champagne per person per year. But I probably drink that on a day, so clearly <laughs> like, some, some how, people how are going without. How do you fit in the average? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Plus, we taste some of the best hot chocolate in Zurich. The fascinating aspect is that you can play with the flavor. So you can produce through the fermentation different flavors and then you can, yeah, I mean, this opens a whole new universe in flavors. All that here on the menu on Monaco Radio. People have been celebrating their most cherished occasions with champagne for centuries. The golden bubbly drink was allegedly discovered by happy accident in the 17th century and was even dubbed le vin de diable, or the devil's wine, due to its exploding nature. Since then, glasses filled with a sparkling wine have become synonymous with birthdays, weddings and, of course, Christmas feasts. But what is it about champagne that makes it so special at this time of year and how do we appreciate it properly? Martin Dibben, head of champagne at Circe's in London, surely must have the answer. I sat down with Martin in the studio to find out more. First of all, I'd like to ask you, because you seem to me like you have the best job title in the world. Your job title officially is head of champagne. Please, can you tell us what it entails? Well, that is my title. And um, yeah, it is a great title, I have to sort of say. And it's a great job. I have for Circe's to go out and we buy about 50,000 bottles of champagne. So that's not an easy thing to do. It's making the selections, it's training the staff, and then also sharing the celebration of champagne with our customers. And also, dare I say, drinking quite a lot of champagne <laughs> at the same time. It's quite They work out that in the UK last year, everybody drank half a bottle of champagne per person per year. But I probably drink that on a day. So clearly, <laughs> like, some, some how, people how do you are going fit without. In the average? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I wonder if you could tell us, from an emotional point of view, um, what is it that connects champagne to the festive season and to festivities in general? Yeah. Well, I think we have to go back in time, you know, a few centuries when champagne was made, you know, down in the region of France. And very much it was just for the very rich. It was for the kings of Europe. So it was seen very much as, you know, a status symbol. So if you drank champagne, then clearly you had made it. So therefore, it was seen as something very, very special. And it didn't really get through to, shall I say, the, the bourgeois until really the Napoleonic Wars, because at that point you had all the Russians and the Prussians that are coming across and fighting literally on the vineyards of Champagne. And I'm afraid most of the time they didn't go and sort of buy it from lovely people like uh, uh, Madame Clicquot and that. They actually took it. And Madame Clicquot sort of said, I'm sure through bitter lips, you know, today they drink, tomorrow they pay. And what she did, though, was let everybody, you know, normal people, normal soldiers, captains and that, actually taste champagne and see what this drink was all about. So at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, actually, she did a crafty thing. She set sail... And she was just about to land in Russia when suddenly Russia won against Napoleon. And she was the only person with champagne there. She rushed it forwards 
to the Tsar, who drank this wonderful cuvee that she made in 1811. And from that, A, she became sort of very famous in that. But because it wasn't just over the Tsar, but all the soldiers that had been fighting in France knew what this drink was. It's the most amazing valued drink. So they all jumped on the bandwagon. And dear old Verve Clicquot, the widow, she became... Um, Europe's for a richest person, a woman, by the age of 40. So she did something right. But again, it's all about celebration. I think what I love about champagne is, you know, the whole wrapping, the whole procedure of opening. I'm going to open our first bottle here. People can't oh, see that we've got a nice in. selection. But the whole wrapping and the procedure it takes to open up our bottle. So I'm taking off the foil first from around that. Now, people should be careful because, particularly at Christmas, the last thing you want to be doing is jumping in an ambulance because a cork has popped into your to your eye. So what's the, what's the best way to do it? So I always like to have a little cloth here, which you always just keep over the top. So I've taken the foil off, and then you've got the wire cage around it, and there's a twister on the right-hand side, and it's six twists. So if you undo it six times, one, two, three, four five, six, and then the cage, you can loosen it. And then with our hand and the cloth still over the top and the cage on, we hold it very tightly. And then very slowly, we turn the bottom of the bottle, keeping our top hand still. And it should just give a very lovely, hopefully it comes. That's the sound. And so I don't wish to be too rude, but we like to call it an angel fart. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they call it in the industry, so we must oblige. Yeah. <laughs> um, please tell us, what is it that you've just opened? What are we about to try? So what we've got here is uh, Circe's. We make our own cuvées, which is made for us by a house called Maison Boutin, which is out in Epinay. And it's an interesting story because you hear all the great families that we know of, the Laurent Perriers and the Tattingers and that. But um, Monsieur Boutin didn't start his house till the 1930s and he wasn't about building chateaus and having his name right across the label. His idea of making money was literally to go to those big hotels, supermarkets that had began in the 30s and all the rest of it and say, actually, would you like to have your own Tiffany's champagne and that? So he literally became the second largest supplier of champagne after Moet and Chandon. Um, so you never really knew about his name but his product is everywhere. It's white label. So this is our white label. We are 175 years last year. I know I don't look it, but uh, <laughs> this is all celebrating John Searcy, and he used to be a sort of chef of the Duke of um, Northumberland. So what we have here is the Searcy champagne, but it's only from the white grape, so it's only from the Chardonnay, and it's therefore called a Blanc de Blanc, which means it's a white champagne from white grapes. Shall we give it a try? Be better indeed. So I always sort of let people know, not only sort of staff, but equally our guests, that when you're pouring champagne, that first little splash creates a lot of froth. So sometimes it's better just to pour that first bit of froth. And then once you've done that, you can then pour it, shall I say, fast into the glass. Hopefully you can hear this wonderful bubbles. I have been bumping up and down on the Jubilee line, so it might be a bit more effervescent than normal. <laughs> no, it is coming up with, uh, what do we call this, foam? 
Foam, yes. A mousse, whatever. Shall we? We shall. Mm. It has this kind of, this magical combination of bitterness and acidity that just gets us so in love with champagne. I guess what I want to ask you is, after all these years drinking and commenting on champagne, what still gets you excited? And where do you think there are developments? Does the taste of a champagne still evolve? Can it still evolve? Or is it such a hallowed classic that, of course, within the remit of what we understand as champagne, there is variation, but this is what it is going to be? So I think many questions there. So we'll start by, first of all, thinking the good thing that's happening now is I think 20 years ago, you probably had quite a lot of people selling champagne in supermarkets and that at very low price. And it wasn't a very pleasant wine to be drinking. And I think now people begin to understand that it's got to be of good quality. And that's also because the demand for champagne has gone up so dramatically around the world. You know, we are we made last year about 320 million bottles of champagne was made and it'll be another about another 20 extra million this year. So it's a scarce product. So you might as well make sure that what we make is the best. The region is restricted. They can't make it any larger at the moment. And so the focus really is on about quality. And then when I share champagne with our customers and with our staff, it's just great to see people sort of come alive when they really begin to enjoy it and then equally recognise the difference, the huge difference there is in champagne. You know, it's the only sort of wine, if you think about it, that's made from three, predominantly three grapes. That's the Chardonnay, the Pinot Noir, the Meunier. It's then they blend wines that can be from different villages different parcels of land, and then equally you can play around with the sweetness. So all these things, when they come together, can create a very unique cuvee. And that's why we have so many, about 320 champagne houses, all producing different styles. And each house has their style. If you look at Laurent Perrier, you know, they are the house of Chardonnay. When you look at Bollinger, they are the house of Pinot Noir and their style is as such. What would you pair with something like what we're drinking right now? So this is a Blanc de Blanc. It's very sort of acidic. It's very sort of minerally. It's very light. And so therefore, I think certainly if we're thinking about Christmas. You know, I would think about that, that smoked salmon, perhaps, that we do there. Or some just very lovely sort of scallops. Oysters, if you can get some fresh on Christmas Day. Or if you're in France, of course. Or if you're in France, absolutely. And uh, so that's why that's the Blanc de Blanc. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. They call Chardonnay sort of the lazy grape. And we call it that because the whole process of making champagne is you have to lie it down in the cellars. It's for 15 months as a minimum for non-vintage and three years for vintage. But often the great houses will keep it for even longer in the cellars because it's, when it's lying down on the lees, on the sediment, it just builds its complexity and its sort of wealth of flavour. So we call it Chardonnay because she loves to lie down as long as possible. That's why we call it the lazy grape. I can relate. Um, <laughs> and I, I wanted to ask you, I think it's really interesting, the champagne world, because... 
obviously each sector of wine has its own big houses, but in Champagne, they're so prominent. You know, the big houses really grab the headlines when it comes to the sector. Um, how do you see also perhaps a new generation of independent Champagne makers coming through? And how has also a wider movement around natural wine, for example, influenced the Champagne sector? So I think certainly the dominance of Champagne um, comes from the houses and the Gossion who not only grow their grapes, but they buy in the grapes. And obviously the price of these can be quite high, even in the supermarkets. And part of that, of course, is about the marketing that goes towards selling these brands. And that's why they will dominate the market. Um, but there are smaller houses, and we will be tasting a smaller house in a moment, La Palma, who is a smaller house and, you know, worthwhile trying. We have grower champagnes, and what that means is, is you have to literally grow your grape and make your champagne. But, of course, these are very small quantities, and so they tend to be drunk locally or in France because... You can't make a contract with a restaurant or a hotel on that because the volume you have isn't that great. So we do see some grower champagnes, but if you're a fan of grower, I think the best thing is to go over and just wander around the vineyards, around Epinay, around Reims, um, and enjoy what you find. What is, What are some of your favourite memories with champagne? I mean, you must have so many, but if you really look into your heart, uh, whether it's being in the region or a time when you enjoyed it at a party, at Christmas? What kind of comes to mind when I, I ask you to evoke a really special memory? There have been many, many uh, special memories from Champagne. My first real, what I call a state visit, was when I went in the year 2000. I was one of 16 people chosen to go to what they call the Champagne Academy, where you go and you study with the 16 Grand Marks. And it was just sort of the honour of visiting all 16 houses and tasting a range of their cuvee and meeting the people, meeting the owners, you know, meeting Alexander de Nonacor, who is, you know, the senior board member for Laurent Perrier, you know, meeting Hubert de Billy, who is the director and CEO of Paul Roger. So... These people are actually in my diary, you know, in my little black book. And what I love about the area and the, and the big producers is they don't care how much you sell. If you have a passion for champagne, they have a passion for you. Uh, another nice, very happy memory, um, I'm visiting a lady called Nicole de Snozzi, and she was like the world ambassador for Laurent Perrier, and a great sort of friend of mine, and I was staying with her, and we'd popped up to the market on Saturday and then we came down to this small cafe called La, La Boue, La Bau, and um, a wonderful characters running it. These two quite large, portly lady and gentleman um, both had sort of cigarettes that are bobbling up and down on their, their lips and we were just having a lovely bottle of champagne and then suddenly before you knew it, you know, um, you had other houses were all gathering. It's sort of a place that it wasn't grand, but all the champagne owners sort of come there and wave at each other and then sort of send a bottle of theirs um, across to each other to share and enjoy champagne. So it's just that whole thing that there is competition between the houses, but very much they see, the champenoirs see themselves as a body working together. And then I think that the most other great memory was we cycled across the senior people of Circe's 
And uh, madly, we took three days to cycle all the way across to to Epine, we decided. We thought, well, we couldn't really end up maybe in Reims because, you know, you end up at the cathedral. It wasn't right to take a picture of all the cycling across on our bikes. But it'd be great to cycle down the um, Avenue de Champagne. So we duly do that, exhausted. I have to say I had to get off my bike a few times. But we've been welcomed by Perrier Jouet into what they call the Perrier Jouet Social, which is the most beautiful garden and champagne bar they've created opposite their house. And we just arrived there, and just to enjoy, they served us their um, Blanc de Blanc. Um, We had a few glasses of that, which was wonderful. And that gave us the energy then to cycle on another mile out of the Avenue de Champagne to Tathinger's Chateau Marqueterie, where we arrived and were greeted um, with great celebration by the house. And that was a very special memory. Highly dehydrated, of course, and those few glasses of champagne went straight to your, to your head, but it was a great celebration of what we'd achieved. Cozying up with a warm mug of hot chocolate after a day in the snow or a long stroll through the chilly streets is a surefire source of comfort. And when you're in a place like Switzerland, famed for its chocolate makers, you know you're in for a treat. Award-winning artisanal Swiss Chocolatier Garsoa is renowned in Zurich for its rich dark chocolate and has just opened its shoggy pop-up in town. The team welcomes young and old, neighbours and visitors and serves various hot chocolates along with their chocolate bars. Each drink served is based on a specialty coffee and the idea is to showcase the versatility of chocolate and the different kinds of flavour it can bring. Miriam Zumbul went along to find out the secrets of good chocolate. She brought back this report. There is probably no greater joy than to find a chocolate shop in the middle of a residential neighbourhood. You can already see the children pressing their noses against the windows and the adults looking for change in their pockets. Franziska Ackert founded the chocolate manufactory Garsoa together with a friend in 2016. But she wasn't trained a chocolatier, but a cheesemaker. And when she learned that cocoa beans are, just like milk, fermented, it sparked her interest. Even so much that she travelled to the jungles of Peru to learn everything about cocoa beans from the farmers there. The relationship with the cocoa farmers continues to this day and characterises the philosophy. Our philosophy is like that we really produce pure chocolate, pure single origin chocolate. So we have only two ingredients with cocoa beans and sugar. And that's because we want like, to have our chocolate fully traceable and fully know with whom we're working and why and where does the cocoa come from. And also to like give another opportunity to the farmers so we buy really good quality of cocoa and we, we appreciate that. So we pay a better price and in the end for the consumer this like better uh, or this new market for the farmer can be a new experience for the consumer so that you can really taste different types of cocoa beans, different fermentation types, because it comes only from one farm or from one group of farms. And through our direct contact, yeah, we can really work together on the quality. We can discuss, we can, they know what's happening with their cocoa beans and we know where it comes from. So this, I think you really taste that in the product. Mm -hmm. So each load of cocoa from each farmer tastes differently. This brings a natural seasonality and variety to the flavours. 
So far, 10 different chocolate bars were created. Kurimana Peru is made of 76% organic pure cacao and raw sugar, tastes like spices and reminds us of a tropical summer breeze. Matazia Uganda, on the other hand, has notes of sweet nuts and dark berries. And for Christmas, after days of ponder, they created a Weihnachtsschoki, a Christmas chocolate that is refined with cardamom. From bean to bar, everything is well thought of at Karsao. From packaging to molding the chocolates, everything is handmade. So we get the, the raw fermented and dried cocoa beans from our partners. And then we do, we like roast the beans, peel them, crack them, grind them <laughs> and add the sugar. And then we have the finished chocolate, all made really in our proper factory. And then we also pour the, the bars or we temperate the chocolate and pour them into the bar and wrap them in our factory. So it's like something that, because in chocolate industry, it's really a very specialized industry. So you have the companies that do the couverture, do a kind of chocolate mess, and then you have a cho uh, companies that only pour bars or other companies that only um, produce cocoa butter. So it's a really specialized industry. And like to have really the concept of bean to bar all in one place, in one factory, that's not so much common as we maybe think. As a small business, Franziska and her team can act quickly and follow new ideas for aromas and collaborations with a heartbeat, such as a collab with local coffee roasteries in Zurich. A collection of different coffee chocolate bars are on display at the Garçao pop-up store, each one with a distinguished, interesting flavor. Cocoa and coffee is a mix made in heaven and is certainly also due to the fact that both beans are fermented. It's fascinating to hear how the beans for Carsoa chocolate are, one can clearly say, 100% naturally fermented. So the, after you harvest the cocoa fruit, so you break the fruit open and then inside you have the seeds. It's about 40 to 60 seeds per fruit um, with a lot of like a pulp around it. And in this pulp you have a lot of uh, sugars and it's, it tastes like a lychee a little bit similar and then this sugars from there I mean you put it or the seeds with the pulp around it you put it in a in a wooden box or you make heaps so there are different ways of doing this fermentation or you put it in big bags or anything and then like depending the fermentation protocol you are following you like need to get air in your in your heap or in your box like every 12 to 24 hours and this means you like You cannot just steer a little, so you like really actually put the, the whole cocoa seeds you earned, you put it into, an, you harvest it, you put it into another box. Mm -hmm. And then you do, you repeat this like for five, depending the variety, to three to seven days. Um, and then once it, ferment, it is fermented, you like stop the fermentation with the drying process. So the drying process is really important to like Yeah, to give it an end, <laughs> like mm -hmm. to stop the whole biological processes. So you dry it mm -hmm. under the sun, and this takes another five to seven days. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's also what fascinates me about fermentation is that, like, with a very actually uh, natural process, as you call it, so you don't need big machines, you don't need ingredients. Mm -hmm. So um, with a lot of knowledge and also good 
yeah, good management of the farms, of the product, of everything, you can very easily ferment. So fermentation is a hundreds of years people have survived mm-hmm. um, thanks to fermentation because they could store a product. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, that's a really fascinating uh, world. Mm-hmm. And in cocoa, for me, it's the fascinating aspect is that you can play with the flavor. So you can produce through the fermentation different flavors and then you can, yeah, I mean, this opens a whole new universe in flavors. And if you can play, if you can really manage to to use it as a product development step. While many drink hot chocolate with added spices, syrups and a generous amount of whipped cream, Francisca and her team want to keep it as simple and delicious as possible. I mean, as a cheesemaker, I wouldn't have anything against milk. I mean, I love milk, but I just learned from, from, the, from our partners, like in Peru and especially also Guatemala, that they usually drink hot chocolate. I mean, the way they know cocoa bean is as a drinking chocolate. Mm-hmm. But when they talk about drinking chocolate, it's with water because they're almost, yeah. Milk in the tropics is a bit uh, <laughs> a difficult subject because you need to cool it and the cows are also not, it's not their environment. So, and there's no milk and they, they mix it with water. Mm-hmm. So you have like, but, um, so you have like the whole cocoa bean So really chocolate, not only the cocoa powder, Mm -hmm. um, which is something different. So when you use the whole bean, you also have the cocoa butter in it. So it's already quite a a heavy meal, let's say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or quite rich in content. And then then you don't need milk. Mm -hmm. So that's why, yeah, I, I got fascinated from this product because it's also really nice to drink it. So I... Personally, I, I really loved it and I thought, yeah, it would be nice like to someday to try it, to sell it here or to, yeah, to have this experience here. And that's why then we did this uh, chocolate. So the perfect homemade hot chocolate is just two ingredients and 10 minutes away from your sweet craving. And while the idea of mixing chocolate with water might be new to some, it opens up a whole new way of enjoying the hot drink. The milk flavor flattens the refined chocolate flavor, while the water does not distort it. A visit to the Garçao Schoki pop-up is highly recommended for everybody that makes it to Kreis 5 in Zurich. Franziska has tips and tricks for everybody else to enjoy their drink at home. I think you can try, yes, mm-hmm. definitely. So you can melt the chocolate and you can try it with, I would recommend to try it with only water. Mm-hmm. But then you, like for our drinking chocolate, we recommend to use like 20 grams per deciliter or mm-hmm. per 100 cl. Mm-hmm. And then you can try. All right. Adjust the, adjust the recipe with cream or without cream. <laughs> <laughs> Hot chocolate is the most restorative after being out in sub-zero temperatures this winter. It's chilly outside. Drink up. For Monocle Radio in Zurich, Miriam Zumbühl. Thanks, Miriam. You're listening to The Menu. For centuries, the appearance of boza, a slightly alcoholic, hot fermented drink, has marked the start of Istanbul's winter. 
Made from bulgur rice, sugar, yeast and water, this sweet concoction is eminently indulgent and almost feels like a treat at the end of a meal. Monaco's Istanbul correspondent Hannah Lucinda Smith went in search of the drink that has become part of the city's seasonal fabric. This is the sound of a buzzer seller heralding the Istanbul winter. Boza is a silky, caramel-coloured drink made of fermented polenta, lusciously thick, lightly alcoholic, served, hot or cold, on the street or in a bozahane, a boza house. And it is deeply warming as the temperatures drop. Boza is the stuff of Istanbul legend, and its history in the city stretches back to the Ottoman era. Evliya Celebi, Istanbul's 17th century chronicler, recorded more than 300 Bozahani across the city, some of which could slip you opium in your malt. Orhan Pamuk, Istanbul's most famous modern chronicler, made a Bozasala the central character of his novel, A Strangeness in My Mind, his best book if you ask me. Boza season in modern Istanbul officially runs from September to May, but on the ground, you only find Boza once you've crossed the winter equinox. Now, hear me out on this. Istanbul is a winter city. November to March are the months when you'll be blessed with the very best kind of cold. Istanbul's winter is packed with days when temperatures are briskly low, but the sun still shines fiercely, making picture-perfect patterns on the crisp Bosphorus. The storms that come at the start of winter as the last of the summer's heat breaks are spectacular. And when it snows, the city's mosques and minarets turn white and the famous panorama becomes a winter wonderland. <laughs> Since the turn of the millennium, the Boza sellers have had competition from the big guys. These days, you can buy your boza in plastic bottles from the supermarket, and the boza sellers have dwindled. Although you might still be lucky enough to hear the boza seller passing by on a crisp Istanbul night, finding him is a harder proposition. I'm never in the mood enough for boza to run down to the streets to find him. More seasoned Istanbulites drop a basket on a string from their window, sending enough money for the boza that the seller will send back up. So, instead, I came to Istanbul's oldest bozahane, Vefa Boazaji, in the historic Fatih district. No opium here, but in every other respect, it's like travelling back in time. The interior is dark wood and richly coloured tiles, and the servers wear matching aprons. The boza here is so thick that you almost have to eat it with a spoon, and even though the temperature outside is biting, as soon as it hits my stomach, I feel warmed from the inside out. For Monica in Istanbul, I'm Hannah Lucinderson. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. 
I am Chiara Rimella. This program was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finished this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Champagne Kisses by Jessie Ware. Upon the sun, I left, except you.